0: Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One.
1: And welcome to the Dr. Drew Podcast. As usual, support those that support us. We really appreciate it. Um, I'm going to get right into it today. I'm very privileged to welcome Professor of Psychology from Harvard University. Joshua Green, uh, the book is Moral Tribes, Emotion, Reason, and the Gap Between Us and Them, available on Amazon. You can also follow him at joshua-green, G-R-E-E-N-E dot net. Dr. Green, welcome to the program. Hi. I really appreciate you being here. I heard you on other podcasts, I think probably mm, rashly speaking or something like that, and I thought, oh my God, I've got to talk to you some more. This is uh, fantastic. Oh,
0: thanks. Well, it's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, and I, I, I remember you from... from you know, from, from years ago, from Love Line, going all the way back to the '90s.
1: So that that is us. For all
0: your good advice.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate. Uh, Doctor Green is involved in research and writing, largely connected to moral judgment, decision making. He also uh, very much involved in cognitive science. And we, we live in a time when, <laughs> you know, the, the notion of tribe and tribalism and ideological sort of. Uh, what should we call it, Uh, you know, the the cognitive dissonance and the distortions that are going around in the world today are just overwhelming. So I'll I'll let you start the conversation with where your interest lies today.
0: Well, I I guess uh, for a long time I I was, you know, trying to formulate my own diagnosis of moral problems. That is, you know, where where do they come from on a more proximate psychological level? That is, what Going on in our heads when we're making the kinds of decisions that get us into trouble, and, and also on a deeper evolutionary level, where, where both biological evolution and, and, and cultural evolution, what's the deeper history of the of, of the things that divide us? Um, and now I'm, you know, increasingly trying, increasingly trying to think, you know, what what can we do? <laughs> How can we use the things that we've learned to? Um, to try to make some progress. And that's, that, of course, is uh, much, much more challenging. But that's, that's, that's what I've been thinking about.
1: I, I recently heard, was it Jonathan Haight, is that how you pronounce his name, social psychologist talking about yeah. uh, sort of the, the currency of outrage and the currency of prestige in sort of uh, calling out uh, members of the out group. Are you doing much thinking about that?
0: Well, I think it's 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 part of a of, of a larger picture. That is, uh, you know, there, there's there's a lot of another way. Of, a term people often use is, is signaling, right? Uh, that is, you know, when when we say something, we may be trying to express what we believe to be the truth, or to be the truth, but we're also trying to send signals to other people about what kind of people we are. And you know, there there may be situations in which you know one might be open to certain ideas. Uh, but if the, the people who one depends on most are completely opposed to those ideas or they think everybody else is, then it makes it much harder to express them and then makes it much harder for people on either side to find a kind of common ground.
1: Which is the really, the description of the world we're in right now.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's at least one, one, one big part of
1: it. What other, that's one big part. What else we got?
0: Well, uh, there's a kind of, Chicken and egg problem when it comes to people's information universes. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion, obviously, about fake news, but what you know, the, the recent explosion in interest in, in in misinformation under that term is really kind of just, I think, coming to to, to the head of the coming to a head of of uh, problems that have been brewing for a long time, where if people only get information from sources that they trust, and the sources that they try to trust are the sources that confirm what they already believe, then, you know, it creates a kind of vicious cycle where people get to the point where you can't even really have a con- or what seems to you to be a reasonable or rational conversation with somebody from the other side, because uh, you have such wildly different assumptions, right? So, you know, when it comes to things like uh, gun control, if you ask liberals what percentage of gun deaths in the United States do you think are caused by assault-style weapons? You'll get an extremely high number, like 35%. If you ask uh, conservatives, particularly conservatives who you know know a lot about guns, they'll give you a much no, lower number, um, something more like 2%. Uh, it turns out that in that case, you know, I picked an example where the conservatives are more likely to be right and the liberals are more likely to be wrong. There are cases where it goes uh, the, the, the other direction, like, in what country was Barack Obama born in? Um, but, you know, when people are starting with such radically different assumptions, it's hard to even know, know, know where to start or make any kind of headway on a rational conversation.
1: Right, and and this is this world where they feel a certain way, right? It's almost like it, it's a psychological issue rather than a issue of data or reality even. It's just they feel like it is so, therefore it is so, and it's a problem that has to be solved psychologically, no?
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that that you know, we're, we're not, most of us, you know, it, it, it wouldn't be possible, not even close, for ordinary citizens to master all of the details that are necessary to have informed opinions about any of the complicated issues that we face, right? I mean, if you ask a supporter of uh, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, to explain how it works, odds are they really can't give a very good explanation, right. nor can someone who's opposed to it, right? You know, and, and, and that's a lot to ask of people, because people have lives and they don't have training in health care policy, and that's right. just one small example. So we rely on our sense of what sounds like the right answer based on general feel and based on what the people we trust, the people around us, either literally or in our, or in, in our information world, uh, seem to be saying, and that's that's what we go with. Um, another example along those lines is, is climate change. If you look at surveys from the late 90s uh, when this was just becoming a public issue, uh, Republicans and Democrats were about equally likely to believe that climate change was something that needed to be taken seriously. And then it became a kind of partisan badge of honor, uh, especially on the Republican side, to to say that climate change is a hoax and it's a manufactured thing by Democrats. Um, and you know, of course, typical people on either side—they they don't know all all of the details or even most of the details. But it has becomes a signal for which side are you on?
1: Right. And that's going back to the tribalism now, right?
0: Yeah. Well, that's—I mean—that—that—that is—that's the epistemic, the informational side of, 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 of tribalism. And most of the issues that divide us, they're not about concrete things that are right in front of us. They're about things that, you know, we, 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 we can't see with our own eyes. Uh, and so we have to rely on what, on, on what others are telling us, either other people or or more institutionalized information sources.
1: Well, it's it's a strange thing in a day when expertise means nothing, right? Experts, in fact, specifically distrusted. To, to me the well, go ahead
0: no I don't I mean I, I I don't think the distrust of you know experts is evenly distributed I mean I think that part of the an increasingly large part of the ethos on the conservative side of the spectrum is a distrust of elites uh, which includes what we would at least traditionally think think of as experts um, whereas you know there are certainly cases on the more liberal side where people distrust experts perhaps the most often discussed example being um attitudes uh anti-vaccination attitudes and and and, and, and beliefs uh which is primarily although not exclusively a liberal phenomenon so it, it can can go both ways but for the most part people people on on the left side of things are relatively comfortable with experts as you know traditionally conceived where there's much more skepticism from experts, especially when it comes to certain hot button issues like climate change and things like that, on uh, the right side of the flip. The I
1: sector. just think we have a, a rash of Dunning Kruger phenomenon amongst the population. Right. Yeah, I really do. And for the a couple of yeah. things I want to elaborate for the, for the listeners, Dunning Kruger is essentially a cognitive distortion where you think you have all the information, you rely on your own judgment about it. And you know nothing. It's what gets people to stand up in front of American Isle and sing like crap It's because they have no scale upon which to measure their experience and no feedback from the environment about their actual knowledge base. And because right. the we have these things in our hand, these phones that make us feel like we are experts in anything just by virtue of a Google search, and yeah. are really experts in nothing, to me that's that's how you create Dunning-Kruger. And I just see lots yep. of it in millennials.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So people are pe- People are – Surprised, you know. Some of the research I'm doing now involves asking people questions about some of these issues, and and you know some people when, when you ask them questions where they think they know the answer and they actually don't, and we try to you know we we make it so that there are things to challenge the liberals and things to challenge the conservatives. Um, some people are really frustrated and and you know really fight back when you tell them you know for example that. Relatively few gun deaths in the United States are caused by assault by weapons. Other people find it find find it very interesting and and and, and illuminating. But certainly, people's uh, confidence you know, it, it exceeds their knowledge.
1: Well, my sense is that you almost have to approach people to change their opinions by changing or addressing their view of the world. You know, yeah. they, they they attach their entire worldview to these opinions. Like, like, I, I always, I always use the flat earthers as my example as the most sort of outrageous distortions. And I, and I think, how would I explain myself to them? What, how I would have to change my worldview, for instance, if their worldview were, we were correct? All, all the laws of physics and mathematics would have to not function, and the phone they have in their hand would, of course, not work because all those laws of physics that we use to develop that don't work if you have a flat Earth. And and so I, I just imagine having the conversation that way, and yet I'm not sure it would get anywhere. Right.
0: Yeah. And, and I think in in some ways it's you know as you said there's this broader web of beliefs that's kind of behind people's misconceptions. Yeah. But I think to a large extent, it's it's social. And I, I, on the one hand, it, it's with 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 armed with just uh, an array of facts. It's it's almost impossible to get somebody to change their mind if they're firmly committed to something.
1: All right, this is the, let, let's. I want you to uh, drill in on that because I heard you say that in a previous yeah. podcast, and to tell, repeat that, and tell people what you mean by that, and what what the alternative is.
0: Well, so yeah, so I mean, it's 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 related to 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 what you said, right? That if you know, if if, if you say, look, climate change is real, so you read this article, and they would say, oh, but that's in the New York Times that's just liberal propaganda then you say well how do you know that it's liberal propaganda and and you know you you you'd you'd have to follow a a, a, a chain of beliefs back to very basic things where people might not even remember where the original sources of their uh you know the, the, their 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 expectations about who you can trust and who you can't Came from.
1: But, but it's, but it's the, weird to us as scientists because we're trained to evaluate data, evaluate the analysis, evaluate the experimentation, read right. all, broadly right. in the whole area to get all the, the different studies that have been done so we get a sense of the landscape yeah. and to evaluate it strictly objectively to talk about persuasion – in that setting is like anathema. It's like, wait what, what? I'm just looking at the data. it's it's the data and the you know, the analysis of the data, the construction experiment, the thinking that went into it. That's all that matters, right, but not for the average person, I guess,
0: right. Well, I mean, to some extent, you know scientists are willing to dig deeper and sort of you know try to have a a, a broader coherent view. but to to a, to a large extent, in the day to day operations of science, we actually don't have to deal with that because we're mostly dealing with people who share our background assumptions and then we're debating some next little new question about, you know, whether things break to the left or break to the right, so to speak. Yeah. I, in some ways an, an, an analogy would be like trying to explain, uh, you know, some new scientific result to some someone who is you know, emerged from a, Hunter gathering society, right? (laughs) Where, where where, you know, you you could say the words and sort of you know read read the description of what was just found out about earthquakes or hurricanes or DNA or whatever it is. But then you have to explain, well, what's a molecule and and what's a nucleotide and what are cells and right? Uh, And and uh, you know, there's so much background information that we just take for granted. And now on the in, in, in the political sphere, it, it's as if you know there are these like two. There are these two separate basic bodies of, of, of knowledge and understanding, and that makes it very hard to have a discussion about anything without having a discussion about everything.
1: Can you describe for people the famous experiment in the fifties with the? Uh the grammar school age boys or was it young adolescent boys uh, where they went to the camp and put them into two different, uh, right. these, the, with the eagles and the snakes, whatever it was.
0: Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, this, so this, this, this gets out, I think, a, a more optimistic view uh, th- that is that fortunately you may not have to convince everybody of everything. You just have to make friends. <laughs> right. Uh and And so let me let me I'll provide some of the background. So what you're describing is this um, experiment done by a psychologist couple Sharif and Sharif, and this is known as the robbers Cave experiment. Mm-hmm. And what they did was they brought uh, a, a, a group of boys to this boys' camp that they that they took over for the summer, and they divided the boys into two groups, and the boys got to Each named their their, their teams. One decided to call themselves the Eagles. The other decided to call themselves the Rattlers. And over the course of the summer, they were were always in competition with each other, competition on the playing field, competition for following the rules. And by the way,
1: as I understand, they didn't even know about each other. But as soon as they found out about the other team, they immediately imagined competing with them in some way, Right.
0: Oh, is that right? I, I thought the. It's been a while since I since I, I looked at the details, yeah. but that's, my, that's how my, I
1: understand it. I haven't looked at it either, but that's my recollection. Right. But go ahead.
0: So the the, the gist, which I think is, is is consistent with both versions, is that they were ultimately uh, sort of by by being separated in this way, and perhaps being you know. It, 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 Encouraged or, or required to compete against each other, really developed pretty nasty attitudes. And they, you know, had and, and these were kids. These these were part. kids
1: were matched by age and family background. Right. And they were, yeah, uh, they were very they, much could not be like, more alike one another, and yet right. immediately perceived differences merely because one was on one island, the other was on the other island.
0: Right. Exactly. Uh, and uh, and and you know, raiding each other's cabins. Uh, and 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 at some point, the researchers decided, okay, this is actually getting a little bit out of hand and They wanted to bring the, researchers, or the, the, the 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 kids back together, and so what they did was they had them, among other things, do some joint tasks together, like pulling a truck out of the mud where they all all the kids had to pull, or they weren't going to be able to get to get the truck out. Um, and with just you know relatively modest interventions of this time, completely turn the attitudes of of, of of the kids around. So I think it's interesting that you brought up that example because I think that. Hits, hits the nail right on the head that uh, the, the, the trick to bringing people together is not is, is not to give you know, good arguments necessarily. I mean that, that, that's, that's the, the finishing touch, but that only becomes possible. The only your, your, your brain is only receptive to what might be a good argument. Once you're already in a situation where you feel like the person I'm talking to, is someone who's on my side, is someone who's part of my who's who's part of my team. So, so I think so. the real question is how do we get the people on either side of this massive divide in the United States, and of course this is happening in, in in other countries to feel like and in some sense legitimately recognize that their interests are aligned, that they are on the same
1: team. Without without needing a common task or a common enemy.
0: Yeah, right. Um, you know. So hopefully we don't need you know aliens attack or something <laughs> like <that. laughs> uh, to, 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 to bring us together, but um, you know some kind of some kind of common cause where people sort of recognize that the the, the person on the other side is 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 uh, a valuable cooperation partner.
1: So what are you suggesting?
0: Well, I don't need to be coy. I have some research on this that that's ongoing right now, but I, it's not published, so I can't really talk about it. Uh, I, I do have some specific ideas. Uh, but but it's... Um, Can yeah. you give us some broad... I, I saw, some in, 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 broad in broad outline... Yeah, I b- because I, I take
1: in broad strokes because I'm, I'm pessimistic and I'm, I'm upset mm-hmm. all the time. And I find it extremely yeah. unpleasant what's going on. And so I'm, I'm, I am I want to know that there's a way out other than right. being attacked from outside.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I... Uh, Rather than talking about you know the research going on in in in, in my lab right now I'll I'll say you we know, where if if things go the way i, I hope or expect or hypothesize with, with with the work that we're doing, what would be a kind of uh you know in, in implication of that mm. I think that having some kind of uh, work program uh where people with with different Coming from sort of different cultural backgrounds and political views. Why, why
1: don't we just call that the. Why do we call that? Let's give it a name. Let's call it the military. <laughs> Something right. like that. Well,
0: <laughs> it's interesting that you mention that, right? That, 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 you know, long. I mean, the, the military was one of the first institutions in American life to be relatively successfully integrated, racially speaking. Yeah. And, you know, it didn't happen because. You know, out of the goodness of the military brasses hearts, <laughs> that they, they wanted more bodies for fighting, but you know the, the the bodies had to get along with each other in order to do that, and that meant having you know a structure that was designed to make that happen. Um, and I'm I'm not an expert on by any means on on, on the history of the military and and, and integration right. Uh, right. in in the military, but uh, I think you you again you hit it you hit it right on the head. The other classic example of this is is sports. That if sports teams are are competing each against each other for 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 top talent and there's just no denying if someone is 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 is, a, is an excellent athlete regardless of their of, of of their race or religion then there's a very strong incentive to make use of of, of those talents um and you know so again not to say that that, 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 that the history of, of of sports uh doesn't have plenty of, of racism in it but relative to other domains of american life yeah Professional sports in the military were, were 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 early to integrate, and it's you know because you know frankly the kind of, you would think of it as the the strategy or the economics of it dictated it from the top, and then the institutions made it happen. Okay, so so then that raises the question, right? Is you know obviously we're not going to have the whole nation uh, playing baseball uh, or, or hopefully not fighting a war, but what would have the equivalent?
1: psychological effect. Right. Um, I get it. Right. Well, Hydrolyte, do not let the dropping temperatures fool you. You can get dehydrated now, especially when you work out hard. And look, you don't feel as well. You don't perform as well unless you stay ahead with your hydration. If you listen to my shows, you know, I love Hydrolyte. I first found out about Hydrolyte when they sent samples to my medical office. I noted then that it was exactly what I've been looking for, for oral rehydration for patients with serious volume depletion. I tried it, I was impressed, and I reached out to find out a way we could work together. Two years later, I am still using this almost every day. My family uses it, my patients use it. Quite simply, Hydrolyte is the best oral rehydration product I've ever seen. It provides the proper balance of sodium, glucose, and water. Compared to sports drinks, Hydrolyte delivers up to four times the electrolytes with 75% less sugar. It's appropriate for all ages. Each package includes easy-to-follow dosing instructions. Hydrolyte comes in great flavors like orange berry and lemonade, and it's available in a pre-mixed drink, a powder, or of course, the effervescent tablets you simply drop in a bottle or a glass of water. I love this stuff. I literally don't leave home without it. You can find HydroLite at Rite Aid or at hydrolite.com slash Drew D-R-D-R-E-W. And for a limited time, our listeners can save 30% on HydroLite. If you click through the banner on my website at drdrew.com, then use the code Drew 18 D-R-D-R-E-W-18 at checkout. So you can either do my website or... Or hydrolite.com slash Dr. And then in both cases, use that code, Dr. Drew18, for the 30% discount. Pluto TV, leading free streaming television service. Watch over 100 channels, thousands of movies on demand and completely free. Never ask you for anything. You just download the app and boom, the menu comes up. It's ridiculous. By the time I finish this ad, anyone listening, you should have that app on your phone. You will be stunned. When I did it, I couldn't believe it. They didn't ask for a sign up, they didn't ask for money. What are you waiting for? You never pay for TV again by downloading Pluto TV. And you can download Pluto TV for free on all of your favorite devices today, including phone, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, Smart TV, PlayStation. Anywhere you stream, you get that Pluto TV. It's the leading streaming television service. Pluto TV. Watch over 100 TV channels, thousands of movies on demand, no credit card needed, no sign-up. Pluto TV is the easy and completely legal way to watch your favorite TV shows and hit movies. What are you waiting for? Never pay for TV again. Download Pluto TV free on all your favorite devices. Do it now. I, I, I guarantee you, you'll be as stunned as I was. What immediately is available to you right now for free. Purple is a great mattress. That's it. That's all I got to say. We have it at our house. We use it uh, when guests come over and they rave about it. They, always, I, they literally always ask us, what kind of mattress, What What is this? It probably and it feels different than anything you've ever experienced. It's a brand new material developed by an actual rocket scientist, not like the memory foam you're used to. It's unique because it's both firm and soft at the same time. It supports you right where you need support, and uh, that's what everyone reports to us when they <laughs> when they wake up in the morning. And of course, they have their 100 night risk free trial. 100 night risk free trial. If you're not fully satisfied, you return your mattress for a full refund. It's backed by a 10 year warranty, free shipping and returns. It shows up. It's a thing you unroll right under the bed, and boom, you've got your mattress. You're going to love purple. And right now, our listeners will get a free purple pillow with the purchase of a mattress. That's in addition to the great gifts they're offering site-wide. Just text the word Drew to the number 474747. The only way you get that free pillow is to text Drew to 474747. One more time, Drew, Dairy W, to 474747. <music> Let's yeah. go. Let's get, your book is called "Emotion, Reason, and the Gap Between Us," and so I'm imagining in there you drill into moral decision making and, and morality generally, yeah. and and tell me more about you know what your you're you're a PhD is in philosophy originally, right? And yep. so I, I'm wondering what your na- notion of morality is. Are you sort of is this a Kantian, a Humean, a neurobiological? Uh, where, where where are you?
0: So I I'm so. I, I'm a utilitarian, but I hate the word utilitarian uh, because it, it sounds like a lot of things that I don't think are are, are the right things to think about, like the laundry room uh, or, or, um, uh, or, or, or the idea of, you know, it's very hard to get excited about utility. You can, you know, march in the streets for rights and justice, but no one ever marched for utility maximum Um, utility. (laughs) Yeah. So, so, so my, my, uh, I hate to call it this, but for lack of a better term, rebranding of utilitarianism is what I call deep pragmatism. Oh. Uh, which I think just... So more like, like that's say,
1: like Peirce. Like
0: um, well, so Peirce
1: uh, was no? a
0: pragmatist. And no. Well, there are aspects of Peirce's philosophy, if I recall correctly from, from the limited exposure I've had to it, that I, I, I'm not so keen on. The, the the American pragmatists, many of them, in addition to being pragmatic in the ordinary colloquial sense, had a what we call a pragmatist theory of truth, where the idea is that what is true is what's good for us to believe, and uh, that it,
1: I- it's what's true is what's. Tr- I think it's more what's true is what's pragmatically relevant or useful, pragmatically useful, right? Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I,
0: and I, I guess I, I take issue with that idea. That yeah. is, I, right. I, I, I'm kind of an old-fashioned, what philosophers call, correspondence theory of truth person. I think that what it means for something to be true, or a statement to be true, is that it corresponds to reality. Um, and there may be truths that if we believe them, it won't be good for us. But right. that doesn't mean they're not true. Right. But this is kind of a side issue. I think I, 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 I am a kind of pragmatist in the in the colloquial sense, But uh, I think one thing I don't like about pragmatism in the colloquial sense is that it suggests a kind of expediency or superficiality, That is, you don't have any deep convictions, you're just trying to get a certain job done or something like that. And so the reason why I, I like to think of utilitarianism as deep pragmatism is because it's pragmatic in the sense of being ultimately about producing good consequences for all concerned, but it's not pragmatic in the sense of uh, of, 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 of lack, lacking a, 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 a deep moral core. So the, the basic idea, and it's really sort of two ideas put together. One, which is I think is a core idea of every modern moral philosophy, or nearly all of them, is impartiality. That is that, at least if we're going to have some basis for making decisions in a, in a, in a large-scale society, the rules have to be impartial. They have to they have to give everybody's interests equal weight. You can't say this is what we should do because it's better for me and I'm me, and therefore that's what we should do. Uh, uh, that's one thing. But then the question is, all right, but how how do you weigh competing interests? How do you decide if this person's right to freedom conflicts with somebody else's right to security or to not be offended? How do you weigh those things? Yeah. And, the, and the, the utilitarian answer is the ultimate currency for the things that we care about is the quality of people's experience, which you can call happiness or happiness minus suffering. I think that, that can be misleading as well. But mm-hmm. the, the, I think the best way to think of it is start with anything that you care about and keep asking why do you care about that until you run out of answers, right? So if you say, oh, you went to work today. Why would you go to work? You say, well, I enjoy my work, but also, you know, I need to make money. And say, well, why do you care about money? Well, you know, I need to pay the rent. i was like, well, what do you need the rent for? Why can't you just live outside? Well, it's cold. Well, what's wrong with being cold? Well, it's painful. So well, what's wrong with pain? Well, it's just bad, right? Mm. Uh, and and the idea is that if you sort of chase down all of those why's, you'll, with anything you value, you'll ultimately come down to the quality of your experience or the experience of someone you care about. So you put those two things together and you say, okay, everybody matters equally and what really matters for everybody is the quality of people's experience. Okay. You put those two things together and that's that is essentially utilitarianism. Again, terrible name for a good philosophy, and I prefer to call it deep pragmatism. But if you're a deep pragmatist, then what it really means is that what you're ultimately trying to do is make the world as happy as possible. And what that most urgently means is eliminating as much suffering as, as, as possible. Well, um, no, thank well and, so I'm going to
1: have to stop you. So I'm, I'm not sure happiness is the opposite of suffering, and I'm not sure what you mean yeah. by happiness yet. <laughs> yeah. Are you talking about eudaimonic happiness or hedonic happiness <laughs> or just euphoria? I mean, what do we mean when we say happiness? <laughs>
0: um, I, I would, when I say happiness in this context, I mean the, the quality or the positive quality of lived experience. So when you say happiness, people tend to think of, you know, kind of like my favorite things from the yeah. sound of music, yeah. right? And the things that immediately put smiles on your faces, right? And those things may make you happy, but those aren't the only things that affect your happiness, right? You don't think of, you know, fixing the brakes on your car as something you do for your happiness. But of course, if you didn't fix the brakes on your car, you'd be a lot less happy and other people might be as well. So... You know, you, you wouldn't necessarily describe all of these other values, right, as as being about happiness. But I, the, what I mean by happiness is, uh, as a value, is that it's again the any, any anything
1: anything that's not that unpleasant
0: anything that affects the quality of, 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 of your of your lived experience
1: and, it, um, you're and, you're just and going how po- much it matters. But you're wearing really positive Sorry. and negative valence. You're just putting a valence on yes, it, really.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay. That's, I think, the clearest,
1: if, yeah. if not most uh, you know colloquial way to put it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, all right. And, and so, <clears throat> shoot, I had something else. I lost my train of thought on the the issue of uh, positive negative valence. It's not coming back to me. Well, in any event... Uh, how do we so oh I know I was gonna ask you. So, so this this the phenomenology of this, do you think it is merely a, a neurobiological expression of our evolutionary adaptedness? And just increases the probability of the species moving forward in a social context?
0: So I think that the 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 origin of our positive and negative mental states you know, are those are essentially the the, the carrots and the sticks that our brains use to get us to do things, either to avoid things that are bad for us or to do things that are good for us, like, you know, eat food and don't touch fire and things like that. However, humans are especially are unusual in that, you know, our niche, the way that we survive in, in a wide range of environments is by having being very behaviorally flexible, right? Right. So you know we can make clothing and we can build boats and we can sing songs and we can do all kinds of things that might uh, increase our ultimately increase our fitness in the in the in the biological sense. But uh, these things are too complicated for uh, for to have all the answers encoded in our genes where we're we're operating on kind of hardwired instincts, right? Right. And so what this means is that. What we have is a general desire for our own well-being, and because we survive by cooperating with other people, we have a desire for the well-being of at least some other people, maybe lots of other people, the more generous uh, we're feeling. And we have brains that enable us to solve complicated problems that nature couldn't have anticipated. And this gives us the capacity to have values that supersede the sort of core biological value of passing on our genes. So to make all of this much more clear, let me give you a, 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 a clear example. So take the case of birth control. Right? Mm. Um, birth control is essentially our brains kind of turning their own nature on its head, so to speak, right? That is, uh, you know, if there's one thing that your genes, so to speak, don't want you to do, it's take a pill that's going to make it so that you can't Make more copies of your
1: gene. Well, unless right? unless there's a right. priority for the overall genetic load of the species, and we're endangering that with overpopulation.
0: So that would that would be that would be a, a one that would be one explanation. But I don't think that that's what's going on here. That is, we didn't evolve birth control in order to limit the human population because it was because it was bad for it was hindering the spread of our gene somehow.
1: Because we so didn't that, we didn't think that's what we were doing anyway.
0: Right. Well, yeah. You know, maybe there's a, there's a uh, there's, there's 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 a hidden agenda we don't know about. But I think the most straightforward story is that nature made us uh, enjoy having sex for various fairly straightforward biological reasons and some more complicated reasons having to do with the role that sex plays not just in procreation but in in, in human relationships. And then, and, and, and then humans decided that you know rather rather than having lots and lots and lots of babies. What we'd like is to have babies when we want to have them, and maybe not have as many as we could have, and that we would actually enjoy our lives more, uh, having more control, and not just, and, and, and not doing the sexual equivalent of yeah, always eating when we're when we're hungry, so to speak.
1: And, right? and theoretically, uh, that that could help improve productivity of the offspring too, right? I mean, it could help the way we raise kids, and it could change the way that you know the next generation is. It could improve the outcome for the next generation, theoretically. It
0: could, yeah. But in in, in developed countries, in in a lot of developed countries, uh, population growth is actually falling below replacement rate. So yeah. in many parts of Europe, you know, people people are the, the population or the native population is actually dwindling. So, in principle, that that could be possible, but I think that that's not actually what's happening. Okay, Instead, I think what's happening is we use our big, fancy primate brain, yeah. uh to figure out how to get something that we want. In other words, how, 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 how to get those enjoyment signals out of life uh, without doing the thing that the enjoyment signals, at least a lot of them, were designed to get us to do, right? So you right. can have the Enjoyment benefits of having sex, both the physical pleasure of it and the, and, the, and the relationship benefits, and all of those things, without actually making more babies that you then have to take care of. Right. Um, so the point is that you know we can kind of c- climb climb the evolutionary ladder and then and then kick it away. At least I think that's what we've done for now. Uh, you know, with, with our with with our reproductive uh, technology. That's not to say that it will last. That is to say, you know, there could be some groups that are opposed to birth control, and then those groups are more likely to grow and grow and grow, and ultimately uh, take over. And we see so you know, some signs of this in some cultures where groups that, for uh, various reasons, are intent on having more children end up uh, you know, becoming larger and larger, a larger and larger proportion of the population. Take, for example, Orthodox Jews, um, uh, the Haredi in, 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 in Israel. Um, so, uh, but coming back to sort of the main point is that, uh, as I would think the, the, the case of birth control illustrates, we may have certain innate tendencies, but we also have a very flexible kind of intelligence that enables us to do things that might ultimately even subvert the, 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 the goals of evolution that we're not, we, we are not necessarily doomed to be uh, you know, warring tribalists, or whatever it is that, morally speaking, we're afraid that we are, but that, but it also may be an an, an uphill battle um, if if those are our natural tendencies.
1: So, I, I'm now try, I'm still trying to get back to the solution without you exposing your research. <laughs> Uh, so morality, what's well, okay? I get it. I get what I kind of get the sense of what what the what the solution is. Yeah. I just don't know that you're going to get everyone to you know a, a massive ad- adaptation of you know adoption of that kind of a no. I think it, it
0: it's a long it's a long
1: haul. Yeah. Yeah. I. I. I you know. I. You know. I just. I, I. I want to back off of this reasoning for a second and just sort of look at. Historical sweeps of when tribalism yeah. has emerged do you, do you see other historical moments that have had similar degrees of tribalism
0: well I think it's actually the story of of, of most of human history right that is you know for for, 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 for the, the idea of valuing all human lives equally or even aspiring to that's a very New idea, and even though it's it, it's been around for you know a, a, a few hundred years in the Western tradition, it's not it's not one that, that too many people really live up to, um, even even as many of us uh, aspire to it. So I think you know, I, tribalism is kind of the natural way, and you know what we have achieved, I think, in, is is a is a is a fragile and increasingly strained state where we have good enough institutions that can enable people who are from very different tribes to live productively together and you know what what i worry about and a lot of other people these days is that those those mechanisms that enable us to have this pluralistic large scale society that they are really under stress
1: And is there a reason currently is it do you see any underlying I mean, it's sort of a very vague question, but no, you know. I,
0: I think I think a lot of it has to do with technology, yeah, uh, and particularly communication technology. So you know, you you're, you're old enough to remember Walter Cronkite, yeah, uh, and you know, there was a time uh, when you know, the, the there there were relatively few sources of information, and uh, and, and you know, everybody watched the, the evening news, right? And Cronkite yeah. used to end his, his, his newscast where he said, and that's the way it is, right? Yeah. And, you know, no, one, no one questioned that, right? He was the most trusted man in America, right? Uh, and, you know, he's kind of an icon of an era when people disagreed about what was better or what was worse, but there was a fairly robust, shared, you know, body of of, of, of information. And then... You know, first came radio, and then, uh, and then, and then the internet, and then the kind of uh, enhancement of the internet with, with 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 social media, and these technologies have enabled people to increasingly choose where they get their information from and to focus their, their attention on sources that reinforce whatever it is that they already believe. And so, the the, the proliferation of Options for getting the information that determines our worldview, uh, while in principle it can bring us all together because we're more free, we have more options. Uh, it 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 has uh, it enabled us to to, to to get polarized in in, in, the, in the way that we're seeing. And Another way of putting it is that social media and everything leading up to it, it's it's great in the fight against. Dictatorships, right? Where right. they want to try to control everything through the one state-sponsored radio broadcast or whatever it is. But it, it seems to be cutting the other way uh, in, in, in 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 more developed democracies, where people have the freedom to to, to, to choose, uh, you know, what what they hear.
1: And this is not a uniquely American experience. The polarization, no, right? yeah,
0: no, no. I mean, we see this in in, in especially in in, in Europe. Um, it's uh, it's I mean and and you know countries like Hungary and Poland have have, have really gone very far in this kind
1: of uh, for lack of a better term fascist direction. There works as a product I have been talking about now because I'm excited that we can finally relieve muscle cramps and I, this sounds like a trivial issue, but if you're one of these people that have nocturnal cramps, it's. It's disruptive. It is painful. And sleep is such an important health issue. You you can't catch up. You can't ever get good sleep. And, of course, exercise is important. And I have patients that can't exercise because of cramps. Well, that's why I endorse Therawix Relief. It's a non-greasy foam, clinically proven to relieve muscle cramps fast, reduce muscle soreness, and with daily use, Therawix Relief can prevent the cramps before they start. This will give you a full night's sleep or set you up to be able to do the activities you love and exercise and not... Not be sidelines by cramps. TheraWorks Relief only takes minutes to apply. It absorbs quickly, and it works. I, remec- I recommend TheraWorks Relief to my family, friends, patients, and then they pass it around to their friends and family. It's uh, kind of extraordinary. TheraWorks Relief is my choice for preventing and relieving muscle cramps. Make it yours, too. Get TheraWorks Relief in the pain relief aisle at Walmart, CVS, Rite Aid, and Walgreens, or by talking to your pharmacist. They're excited, as I am, because uh, they don't have to use medication any longer to treat cramps. Learn more at theraworksrelief.com. That is theraworksrelief.com for your muscle cramps. If you're starting the process of buying a car, well, you've been hit with all these terms like MSRP and invoice and list price and dealer price. I I still don't know what these things mean. But what you really want is what are you going to pay? What actually is the price, the true price from true car now? You'll know exactly what you'll pay for the car you want, including fees and accessories before you get to the dealership. TrueCar will show you the true price on cars like the one you want, all from the comfort of your home. How do you know true price is a great price? Because TrueCar shows you what other people pay for the car you want. There's that scattergram, so you're educated about the price range. You know you've locked in a good price, and when you lock in that price, it's for an actual vehicle on a TrueCar certified dealer's lot. It's not some potential car. It is a specific car. And your certified dealers know this, so they set that true price competitively so they can win your business. So when you're ready to buy new or used, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buy experience. Some features not available in all states. The Lady Gang podcast on Podcast One now is a new TV show on E! Watch it Sundays. And if you can't get enough of your favorite lady podcaster, then listen to First Degree, the new podcast from Jack Vanek of The Lady Gang. She talks with True Crime TV producer, Alexis Linkletter, and the investigative journalist Billy Jensen about a chilling ride into the darkest corners of your worst nightmares, serial killers, murders, and cults. Listen every Wednesday on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcast. I want to go back to the book, Moral Tribes, Emotion, Reason, and the Gap Between Us. What more do we need to learn about emotion and reason elevating that gap, amplifying the gap?
0: Well... I mean, I think that there are there 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 are there are two basic approaches. I think that as individuals, we can try to be more reasonable. That is, we can recognize how our brains work; that we're operating largely in an intuitive way, where we soak up the beliefs and values of the other people around us and and the people we trust, and be aware of this and actively seek out information uh, and, you know, be willing to question the things that, that, that we believe. Um, on, a, on a broader social level, I, I, I think it's really the institutional structures that shape how information flows and what people end up believing as a result. Um, and that, you know, the, the, the biggest levers, but the levers that are hardest to move are the ones that work on people's intuitions. Um, so, you know, while I would, well, I think there are things that we can do to, you know, t- attempt to be more reasonable as individuals. I think ultimately, if we're going to find our way out, it's going to be by restructuring our information environment so that we can have 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 the kinds of sane, rational, information, you know, fact
1: based discussions. Uh, that that democracy depends on well i mean let 's look at your your, your day and day out lives at in Cambridge right at Harvard Yes, I mean, just look at that institution i i don 't understand you know we have people that are highly traumatized and what, what are you know and then there are are very uh, we have a whole population of young adults that are used to being rescued by adults, and they can 't seem to tolerate any impingement of that negative affect you were talking about when we talk about the valence of affect good and bad affects, and our response to it is to go, well, oh, let's protect them from all negative valence, as opposed mm-hmm. to what we do clinically is like, let's expose them to it and help them manage it and regulate it. We're doing the anathema, we're doing the opposite of what we do now, in a clinical I, setting.
0: I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical of this. I mean, I spend a lot of time with undergraduates and especially in, 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 in the course that I teach, you know, we, we talk about you know tough, complicated issues. And, you know, there is, there is a kind of sensitivity that maybe didn't exist or existed differently when I was in college now, you know, over 20 years ago. But I I what I find is that if you make it clear to whoever you're talking to that you respect them and that you're not dismissing them because of who they are, and that, you know, whatever it is that you disagree with them about, it's 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 coming from a, a a place of good faith. I I find that students are willing to listen. They might not always agree, but I I, I guess I'm I'm not so convinced that there's really so much coddling going on. Um, but you know, you you you. It sounds like your your experience is different. What makes what makes you think that we're in, in, in deep trouble when it comes to the way we're raising our young adults.
1: I, I'm not – well, I, I, my kids just went through, you know, elite institutions at Northeastern universities and I've seen what's going on and I was just sort of surprised that that's – that, that phenomen, phenomenon of uh, sensitivity to any speech that is impinging is, is amplified rather than addressed rather than than encouraged to face head on it's it go, goes the other way and hmm. maybe it's changing now maybe it's changing back and and i and i do see a lot of prestige in kids uh destroying people uh that they get tra- i i have my own twitter feed where that, yeah. i see that stuff all the time where the biggest yeah. sense of prestige you can you can get is by ruining somebody's life who maybe misspoke or misstepped or whatever um and that's troubling. That's troubling. That's mob. That's mob action. That's, uh, I don't yeah. know. I, I well, I
0: think, I mean, that, that something is really is different than just the, I mean, thank goodness I didn't grow up in the age of, uh, you know, of, of Facebook and, 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 and Twitter and, and whatever the undergrads are on these days. Uh, you know, just being able to sort of you know, make some mistakes and have them disappear instead of every dumb thing you ever said yeah. uh, is broadcast to everybody you know and yeah. available forever. I mean that I think you know I, I think that it it can explain why people are maybe maybe timid and and and, and fearful because yes. even if most people don't like that kind of uh, you know. The, the, are, are not inclined to to, to, to go nuclear anytime uh, someone says something that they that they disagree with or even offended by. It only takes a, 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 a small number of people to make the environment feel like it's, da- it's dangerous
1: dangerous yeah. and, and again yeah. offense is the currency outrage is the currency yeah. that that's what yeah. give, generates prestige let, let me spend the last couple of minutes talking about you a little bit how did, how did you get involved with this how did you get, how did you get interested how did you end up a philosophy phd tell me about that where'd you grow up
0: oh well so i i grew i grew up in in florida um in boker's went, home went to school in, in fort lauderdale um and then i've been Bouncing around the Northeast ever since then, I uh, I spent my first year of college at the Wharton School of Business at Penn, uh, University of Pennsylvania. And I, I realized pretty quickly that business was not for me, uh, but got very excited about uh, psychology, cognitive psychology, and evolutionary psychology. You know, trying to understand how do our brains work and why are our brains shape the way we're, we're, we're shaped. And I ended up transferring uh, to Harvard, and I was an undergrad. Uh, philosophy major there, um, but I always had the biology and the psychology in the back of my head. And as I was learning more and more about moral philosophy, which I also thought a bit about as a, in high school and earlier even, because I did a kind of philosophical debate as an activity, uh, the, the psychology kept coming up, and I kept trying to think, well, you know, we have these moral theories, but and, but they're largely about making sense of the intuitions that we have about what's right or what's wrong. and right. Where do those intuitions come from uh, in the first place? And uh, that was really, you know, what I was trying to understand is our sense of right and wrong from both a philosophical and a psychological and even a neuroscientific perspective. I mean, the work that I'm best known for is uh, r- research using brain imaging and other methods uh, uh, combined with, with dilemmas from philosophy. So, trolley dilemmas is when is it okay to kill one person to save five people? And, um, as an undergrad, I had some ideas about, I, I, I'd taken a neuroscience class and was reading about these moral dilemmas and, and something clicked where I kind of thought, huh, I think that, you know, when people say that it's wrong to push the guy off the footbridge in order to save these five people, it made sense to me that that response was, Coming from a particular circuit in the brain involving neural structures called the amygdala and the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, and then the competing response that says, "Well, maybe it's better to save more lives," uh, in a different part of the brain called the frontal-parietal cortex. Or, sorry, the the frontal-parietal control network. Um, And uh, while I was doing that, I I started a philosophy PhD, finished a philosophy PhD, but I had the psychology and neuroscience uh, bubbling in my head the whole time. And then I. met a then a a new uh, faculty member uh, at Princeton where I was doing my PhD named Jonathan Cohen and I came to him and I said you know I have this idea about how I think these moral dilemmas are what's going on in our heads in our brains when we're doing this and I think you could actually test this with 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 functional neuroimaging which was very new at the time and he got it and thought it was great and said okay but you need to learn how to do this stuff so while I was writing my philosophy dissertation on what's called metaethics—questions about the overall status of ethics—is there any fact in the matter about its right or wrong, and questions like that—I started working on this uh, brain imaging research, testing out these ideas about what's going on our head, in our heads when we're thinking about moral dilemmas, and then that really took off. And I stayed in Cohen's lab for another four years and really learned how to do the research and made a little bit more progress. And then I was lucky that uh, Harvard Psych Department was willing to take a, a chance on a you know a, a philosopher uh, who'd gotten into uh, psychology and, and, and cognitive neuroscience, and so I, I got a job there and set up a lab. And uh, now I've been there for been here for uh, about 12 years and uh, continued to do this kind of work where I kind of. Let my philosophy background be my guide in terms of what questions to ask, but then I try to get at these things and get some traction using the the tools of modern science. So I'm so glad you part. you made
1: a, a study discipline out of the the neuroanatomical imaging because it's not as simple as you know looking on a you know people imagine it's just looking at what lights up and it's like no 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 right. and I yeah. I hate some of these lay pub lay, lay books that are out there particularly ones that try to model addiction and love and those sorts of things like, no, no, this is way more, you can't make those. No, 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 no. We're not there yet. You know, the, the, the fMRI, you know, neuroimaging is extremely has to be interpreted, has to be interpreted. Is is there any, anybody else material you're excited by now uh, in, in that that sort of area of, of neuroimaging and and motivation? Well, I think
0: that, there have been a few things that have happened that have made neuroimaging more recent interesting in recent years so one and this has been around for a while but people have only really started to make full use of it is uh, we call multivariate methods I mean basically you know you talked about things lighting up so what what, what that means is you've got a region of the brain that is more active when people are doing one thing than something else. So to take a simple kind of boring example, if people are remembering a long string of numbers instead of a short string of
1: numbers, the
0: part of the brain that's working harder is uh, this circuit frontal parietal control network, right, which, where which? you can see these...
1: Which again is that's a network that you noticed would was making a sort of a rational computation about morality as opposed to an emotional, right. an emotional uh, react, you know, an intense reaction emotionally.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But yeah. but but the, but the more general methodological advance is that now a lot of re- brain imaging research is done with what's called multivoxel pattern analysis, which is basically it's 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 looking for patterns of activity. Which may not be high or low, but that are just different, Um, as opposed to uh, as as, as opposed to just is this region of the brain more active or less
1: active? It's patterning patterning a brain response.
0: Yeah, so that it's just and what that enables you to do is
1: is to get at the
0: contents of what people are thinking about. In a very crude way, but, but in a in 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 a way where you can actually detect something. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that brain imaging research has become much more about what we call functional connectivity. That is, right. instead of just asking what's wi- up or what's down, wiring. you ask which which right, which which brain regions are at this time when the person is doing this talking to each other. Yeah. But the the, the 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 waveform, the patterns are are more, more synchronized. Yeah. And then putting those things together or especially with with, with uh, functional connectivity, are, are computational models, right, where you're 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 not just saying I expect this to be higher or lower. Instead, you have an equation that tells you exactly what you think these different parts of the brain are going to be doing at different times, right? So, let's say somebody is doing some complicated learning task where on a computer they're turning over different cards on different decks and learning things about what's high value and whats low value and winning and losing points, you might have a detailed model of how this learning process works where you're expecting, let's say you know each new piece of accumulated evidence to carry a certain amount of weight and you're expecting things to move backwards and forwards in terms of the hypotheses that you're you're, you're testing. And you know you could have more complicated you could have a more complicated story about what's going on. And, and what you're doing is not saying, you know, is there more or less activity now? But is the overall pattern of activity that we're seeing across this whole experiment consistent with this set of equations governing these these, these circuits versus some other set of equations governing these circuits? Um,
1: and, and, and so... I'm not clear what that's t- going to teach us, teach us sort of general... Mm, what's that going to teach us?
0: Well, um, now, you know, I... I, I Getting a bit out of my own area. Yeah. Let's let's let 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 us say you know in 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 the in the domain of addiction, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that uh, you want to understand, you know what what goes on when people when 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 people are becoming addicted and when they make the kinds of decisions that that are that are yeah. characteristic of, of of addicts. Yeah. Well, you know, some people think. Now that you know what's what's going on with 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 addiction is that there's a kind of failed learning process, right? Um, and that the same basic circuits that are in in involved in learning in general are being used, but in but but uh, being short circuited in a yeah. certain way when yes. people become addicted to a drug, right? Right. That's well, right. if you if you now this is not we're not there yet, but if you understand the precise principles that govern these learning circuits, right, then you can imagine having more precise interventions where you say, okay, this node in this network, it's not as active as it should be, and it's not playing the inhibitory role that it should, and we're going to insert a microelectrode or make a kind of, you know, genetic modification where uh, you, you 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 send a certain signal which can actually be done with with, with light now. So this is optogenetics, yeah. which is being done in, in animals, not in in, in people. Yeah. That's going to upregulate this or downregulate it. Yeah. But if you're, if you want to have you know a physical intervention that is you know not just bathing the brain in in, in some extra neurotransmitter or something like that or or, or you know, shocking people like you know ECT, e- e- um, but really fine-tuning the circuits, you have to understand how they work. You have to understand what are the general patterns that govern their behavior.
1: Got it. Right? And, um, and I guess there might be behavioral and cognitive behavioral ways to sort of upregulate or down certain areas too. We eventually we'll figure out like specific right. interventions. Yeah.
0: Right. So I think that we haven't I mean you know in terms of real world, you might think of a clinical or behavioral kind of payoff, I think to a large extent we're not there yet. Yeah. But um you can at least see a path forward with some of these more sophisticated models of, of, of neural function that are, are coming out of a combination of neuroimaging work in humans and then, and then more precise uh, work in, in in animal models that you, you know you can't do with people.
1: Well, I could talk to you all day, but I we got to wrap it up, and I, I've got a, a million more things I want to talk about. But uh, maybe oh, I'll have to have you the, back and uh, keep this conversation going. I really appreciate. it. Maybe when your data, when are you going to publish that data about how to solve our well, problems? we
0: just, just we just got our first wave of data last week, and 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 it's going to be a long haul until so we really sort of have our story wrapped up, but I don't know, maybe maybe in a couple of years. 15, nah, I'm not going to wait that so long. Slow. I'll get you back before yeah. then. But yeah,
1: uh, we will follow you on Twitter, at Morality Lab, again the website joshua-green.net, and the book, Moral Tribes, Emotion, Reason, and the Gap Between Us and Them really appreciate so i really appreciate spending time with us and uh, oh, it's my again, pleasure. i i Great want to talk, talk about persuasion i want to talk about other things we can do to help you know sort of bring people around and sort of the difference between educating and changing there's so many different things i want to talk about but we'll have to do it another time and uh, for okay. tonight i'll just say thank you so much for being here oh uh, well thank you all right have a good night thanks so much Bye.